Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I'm joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Coming up on today's show, we have a very special interview with a very special man, Ben Goldsmith, who very sadly lost his daughter Iris when she was just 15 in 2019. Ben has written about the grieving process he went through after her death and the awakening of a new connection that followed in his book, God is an Octopus. Ben joins us now. Hello, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming. It's just such a sad story. I remember when it happened, my daughter's the same age and she sort of knew people who knew people and every 15-year-old in West London was Mm. sort of in a terrible state. Yeah. I mean, I I was surprised by how many people Iris had known. Mm. Yes. I mean, she was always a very charismatic girl from the start. She really sparkled and she was a strong little personality and Mm. very bright and had been to two quite large schools Mm. but the network reached way beyond I mean she had a huge circle of friends it turns out and there was a tree that under which they used to gather on Barnes Mm. Common yes um, because they were too young to go to pubs and things Mm. at that age she was 15 and a half when Mm. she died and by that tree they gathered in their droves you know Mm. kind of no we went along B and I went along and there's a bench now isn't there yeah we put a bench well for for a while the children and Kate my Mm. ex Iris's mother used to decorate that tree and with the seasons, you know, for the first year or so, they put different kind of drapery all over mm. it and candles and lights and all sorts of things. I think the council got a bit unhappy with all of that. So mm. we settled on a bench, mm. um, which seems somewhat inadequate, but it's pretty in its way. That must have been quite comforting, though, that so many of her girlfriends came out yeah. in support for you, I suppose, as parents. Yeah, I mean, the, the letters that we got from some of those children and from some of the parents which I really struggled to read in the early months. It took me about a year before Mm. I was able to kind of find the strength to open them. Some of them would just unleash such a sense of longing, you Mm. know, and kind of were really painful to read because she was so good at school. She was so kind of charismatic and popular, and she used her own strengths to lift up the younger ones and the weaker ones. Mm. One girl wrote to me and said that she'd been picked upon by an older girl in another house at Wickham Abbey, and Iris had gone over and frog-marched the girl back to apologize in person. Yeah. You know, and another one said that you know, by being happy you know, all the time, you made us feel happy. Mm. And she just was a good little student, a good little mm, person. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think the fact that she lived so richly. Mm. A friend of mine whose older brother died in a car accident age 17, the first one of my circle of friends to die young, his mother told me very early on, there's no less validity in a short life than there is in a long one. No. And I suppose if you look at it like that, you know, the, the, there is some comfort. I mean, yeah. I'm, I just, this, because those deaths in Nottingham of that 19-year-old boy, yes. Barnaby and, yes. and Grace, you know, there's something so, and any death is awful, but when there's just so much promise and they're so young and there's so much potential and they're so sort of beautiful and wonderful, it's, Absolutely heartbreaking. Um, That's the agony. Joan Didion said it. She said in her book, which A Year of Magical Thinking, Mm. she said, I know what the fear is because she described grief as feeling a lot like fear, which it does. She said the fear is not for what's already lost. She said the fear is what is still to be lost. Exactly. Mm. And that was very apt, I found. Yes. You have to dismiss the what ifs. There's just innumerable what ifs, what ifs around Mm. the accident itself. And what if she hadn't been there that day? What if she hadn't chosen to drive it that Mm. way? What if someone had got there quicker? But there's also the what ifs. Had she lived, what would she have done? What things would she have achieved? And those things are not productive. Mm. They're just very painful. You have to dwell upon what happened. So tell us about the book and why you ended up, I mean, I suppose every parent has to 
deal with something like this in their own way. But why this book? Why ayahuasca? Why God is an octopus? Yes. Explain yeah, well, that I, to I, us. I never thought I, I never knew. I love the it's title, got, by I, the way. I do like the idea that God, <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, octopuses have got eight brains. Yes. They? yes. So, they're extraordinary creatures. <laughs> yes, they're rather yeah. beautiful I don't as know well, a great yeah. deal about them, but I, I won't eat them. I mean, because because the Italians eat them and I refuse to eat them. Although they are rather short-lived so and everything else eats them. So maybe I wonder whether it's okay to eat them. But what's interesting about octopuses and squids and cuttlefish is that they have intelligence that evolves in a completely different part mm. of the tree of life. Mm. So intelligence evolved in the vertebrates, one part of the tree of life, mammals and birds and reptiles. And so on. But then in a completely different place, separated by tens or hundreds of millions of years, it evolved in a different way. And we have no idea of mm. the nature of... It's supposed to be like co- an alien, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it exists like an alien that's Exactly. Landed. The closest you'll come to meeting an intelligent alien <laughs> is yes. to meet an octopus. <laughs> yes. So the book is not about octopuses. No. I never imagined I'd necessarily write a book. I've been all my life fanatical about nature, mm. wildlife, about rewilding. Yeah. I won a, a prize for the Star Letter to Country Life when I was 14, saying their readers lack imagination on the subject of wild boar. You're of, not course, wrong. of course. Of course, we should have wild boar back in Britain, I of argued, course. in 1995 or six, and got a pair of binoculars for it. And the Duke of Wellington, 99 years old at the time, replied in the following issue If wild boar is seen at Stratfield, say, my keepers will be instructed to shoot them. Mm. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and so I've always been fanatical about these things. And in the darkness, those early days and weeks after losing Iris, on the occasion where light did shine through, mm. it was always in the form of a spark of interest mm. on my part in nature. You know, we lucky enough to live in Somerset, was surrounded by increasingly wild nature. And that was where I found an outlet mm. and an escape mm. and a deep sense of solace and meaning, even if it was just peeling away from everyone to swim in the pond for 20 minutes. Or There's or... a sort of timelessness in it, isn't there? And a sense that you're just part of a much bigger plan, exactly. I always think. And exactly. I think and nature, of course, is, is fascinating because it's got of endless patterns overlaid on mm. patterns and just... Being in nature gives us a sense of solace and a mm. sense of well-being. Bumped and some soul. of that is starting to be understood by science. Mm. We, we walk in a forest, we breathe in volatile organic compounds that are released by the trees that lower our heart rate mm. and reduce our blood pressure mm. and make us feel good. Now, wh- yeah, why, walking barefoot as well is supposed to be very good for you. I like it? to go yeah. and stand in yew trees. All of you this stuff. Very, I mean, yeah. The Japanese health service now directs patients to spend time in nature. They yeah. call it forest bathing, That loosely mm, how it yeah. translates. So we know that being in nature helps us, makes us feel good. And this is where I found solace and, and meaning and, and in time, even a sense of joy, which I couldn't even have imagined mm. in, in the first days. Mm. And so I thought I'd write a book about rewilding. It was actually Isabel Oakeshott, who's mm. kind of a colleague of yours, mm. who said, look, why don't we work together mm. on a kind of roadmap for rewilding and restoring nature in mm. Britain? And I sort of was given the confidence by her to kind of begin that work and Mm. literally in our first meeting she said no 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 hang on a second this needs to be a book by you about your experience and suddenly she sort of did this vault fast and said you know we don't want a scientific book do that no we want an emotional book exactly so I, I sat down and started writing this book and she very sweetly kind of acted as a sounding board during the process so was the process contemporaneous what you were doing or was it no it was two years later so when you lose someone very close to you you immediately start searching for answers, mm. perhaps searching for some ongoing trace of that person, especially if it's a child. It's mm. it's impossible just to kind of swallow it as some statistical anomaly and move on. Mm. You just go through a process of magical thinking, as Joan Didion put it. Mm. And I had never considered kind of the bigger questions of life previously. And you know, it was more than enough to be getting on with here and now, mm. you know, being very active as a kind of in my work and, and as an environmental campaigner and so on find all kinds of activity in my spare time in nature. I didn't need to think about things which we can't see and touch. Mm. 
and suddenly your eldest child is gone, mm. well, where have they gone? Almost the first call I made was to the local vicar in Somerset. Yeah. I spent time with him, Father Justin, who happened to have lost his daughter young as well, and asked him questions that I'd never really considered before. And that set off a process of kind of exploration. Did you need to feel that she was still somehow there? Yeah, I think one really needs to feel a sense of a grander plan, some yeah. kind of yeah. sense of magic. Yeah. You know, because you did reach out to a medium yes. to yeah. try and contact her. So I went to see other parents who'd lost children. Mm. That was the best kind mm. of therapy. I knew a few. I knew about a dozen mm. um, friends or friends of friends who had survived this. Mm. And I just wanted to see them and be in their company because they understood. Mm. And one mother said to me, um, the end of our conversation, she says she gave me a piece of paper with a name and a number and said, call this lady. I'd asked her the question, do you think Peter is still with you in some way? Mm. And she said, yes, of course he is. Of course mm. I do. I can't explain how or why or mm. what it all means, but go and see this lady. Mm. Well, I remember getting an enormous adrenaline rush and thinking, well, maybe I will. I've always been so skeptical about these yeah. things. And I went to see this elderly Dutch lady in West London that very afternoon and had a really extraordinary experience. And I don't try to persuade people that it was real or try to... I think these things are beyond explaining. But what that lady did with me in that room was magic. I don't know how she did it. What happened? What happened? I arrived and I sat down in her little front room and it looked like the kind of front room you'd have gone in to, to do extra Latin or extra English <laughs> yeah. at school. You know. so she's a medium, she was. She's a spiritual medium spiritual and medium. she teaches meditation and so on. And mm. she, she sat, the only thing that would have betrayed that there was anything funny happening in mm. that room was that she had a tray of crystals and things. And mm, she took right. a couple of these crystals in her hands to sort of play with like amber mm. and sat opposite me. And almost immediately she said, there's a teenage girl here and she's been you did know, she know anything about you before you who arrived? knows i mean yeah. I, one assumes not but yes. if, she, if she had yes it wouldn't have made a difference because the conversation that ensued comprised things that she couldn't have known the only other explanation is that she was reading my mind mm. she says she's so sorry that it had to be this way she's mm. so sorry she was always in a hurry that's why she was always in a hurry because it always had to be now mm. she's so sorry that this is how it happened but it would have happened anyway and I said, did you suffer? And she said, I, I, I was terribly winded, she says. And interspersed with me asking, well, what are you doing? How, you know, how? She couldn't really explain. She said, I don't know. I'm not a religious person, but I, I've always had this kind of sensitivity. And I, it's a kind of meditation. It's a mm. kind of, it's neither a hearing nor a seeing. It's a kind of um, an inner thing. Mm. And if I invite it, it comes. And the conversation went on like this. And um, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck prickling up having been very skeptical about these mm. things but bear in mind i was three months into the madness of my grief mm. this was a moment of deep comfort for me mm. just the idea that this could be real mm -hmm. was extremely important for me then mm. she said you know such things as the, you know why won't you open the pink book that sits at home you know a pink book of of letters and things that have been written by iris's friends and so on mm. and i hadn't i couldn't open it and it was there she wants you to open it you know well she couldn't she, have known about that she wanted to play tennis with you and i mm. always been a battle with i always said to her as a child tennis is the one sport you'll always have the opportunity yeah. to play always, every yeah. school every yeah. university when you go on holiday when you go and stay with friends and it just seems to be everywhere it's the kind of game you can just play mm. and she'd always been very stubborn about it and had then learnt it mm. i discovered later in the last year at school and was going to play with me that week. As like a surprise. When I got home after the accident, the stuff was left on the tennis court. And the lady said to me, well, she, she's disappointed not to have played tennis with you. She got rather good and she mm. wanted you to know. Well, how would she? No, exactly. So this thing left me dumbstruck. Mm. Whether it was real in the way that we interpret it or not doesn't really matter because I emerged with a sense of hope for the mm. first time and a sense of 
joy and I was ecstatic and yeah. tearful and it was raining. I didn't care. I sat in this cafe outside of the Fulham Road and a cousin, by remarkable coincidence, walked past and she sat with me and mm. yeah. didn't seem at all surprised by my story. No, we're not. We're not. We're not at all, no. <laughs> um, Imogen and I are quite witchy in that way. Yeah. I mean, we have a friend who lost her sister and, when, you know, we had similar experiences. Yeah, so I, you know, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a huge and I, and I lost my grandmother and that was 30 years ago, but I firmly believe that she's still with me and I do sense her around me. And in my head, she's just in a different room. Kate had felt the same. So yeah. Kate had felt she'd heard Iris talking to her mm. with some intensity in the days after the accident, mm. but she didn't know whether that was her own imagination mm. or, or what it was. But Kate has always had a kind of open-mindedness mm. to such things, mm. whereas I hadn't. Mm, yeah. I was christened and confirmed because I got a week off school <laughs> at the time. <laughs> no, I was never I was never religious. Yeah. yeah. But if you talk to the like the London College of Psychic Studies, I mean the spiritualism really took off after the First World, War. First World War, because everybody was desperate to speak to their brother, their father, their husband, their lover, because it's the same thing, the idea that this, it was so abrupt, the idea that this can't be the end of it. And yeah. so, so that's but, I mean, if you, if you, hugely if, comforting. If you consider the nature of spirituality among all humans who've ever existed, mm. yeah. the overwhelming majority of people have always believed that there is a greater dimension or a different mm. dimension of some sort. Mm. Now, so you talk to indigenous societies, they commune with the dead mm. through the use of psychedelics or in their dreams or through the use of mediums, mm. you know, and it's considered normal. And if you look in the big religions... The idea of a life after death is absolutely standard. central. Yeah. Yes. But but also standard, this yeah. the standard, but yeah. also the idea potentially of, of a kind of recycling of our souls mm. whereby we yeah. we reinkarnate and that's that's a, a fundamental belief of Buddhists yes, and I Hindus. Mean, the idea and, that you're you're put here to learn lessons and, and then to, come and back to, again and uh, hopefully be a bit better. Exactly. Than the last or to make time, up yeah. for the mistakes of the but past. The Germans have a very interesting word which is umwelt which describes each organism's unique experience of the world. Mm. So my experience of the world is different from yours, and the experience of a caterpillar is mm. fundamentally different from that of either of us. Mm. That is the umwelt. And within our umwelt, we really have a very limited perception of what's around us. I mean, our, our eyes perceive less than 1% of the available spectrum mm. of light. Our ears perceive around 1% of the available spectrum of sound. So we operate in a very narrow band of perception. Who knows what's... Yeah. And science explores relentlessly the mysteries of, of nature and the universe. And with every passing year, new miracles are uncovered. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have known 10 years ago that today it would be some scientific fact that the trees and plants of a forest are relentlessly communicating mm -hmm. with each Absolutely, other through a yeah. wood-wide web of, yeah. of fungus? Yeah. Or that beans can summon through a kind of chemical scream mm. wasps to eat the aphids that have yeah. that started attacking them. The whole thing is way more mysterious and complex yeah. than we can even begin to understand. So and, and also want to understand. A lot of people don't want to know about yeah. this stuff. We've been very hostile towards this idea yeah. that we could, because it's dismissed as mumbo-jumbo and silly stuff, but yeah. actually it's not. Well, it also absolutely because the Victorians took this much more seriously yeah. than, than we do. So the idea of, you know, hunting for the paranormal and things like that was a much more respectable mm. thing to do in the Victorian mm. era. And there would be societies where these things were discussed seriously. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I spent a year talking to people I'd never really spoken to. So before. was that encounter what set you on the path? That was the encounter and various strange things that occurred in the run-up, you know, strange feelings and a sense of Iris's closeness in a mm. way that was difficult to kind of grasp. Mm, yeah. And I spoke to a rabbi several times. I spoke to a Kabbalist rabbi. I was taken by a friend who's been a car mechanic for years in Sri Lankan who took me to see his monk at the Vihari in Acton mm. just to understand how they interpret death how they interpret ongoing existence mm. after death 
And from some surprising quarters, it was suggested to me that I experiment with some kind of a psychedelic yeah. experience, which I'd never really done before. I was always a bit square about such mm. things. I smoked a bit of pot, you know. In, yeah, I in, went to your 21st birthday party and it was very square. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. It was really good fun, was but, it? but there wasn't much noise no, no, I mean, going I, on. No, but I think, I think a lot of my friends were sort of, well, I mean, I think I was like sort of red wine, slightly maybe. the odd one out, but I was always quite square about these things and I'd certainly never, apart from one experience in travels in South America in my teens, mm. I, I really had not yeah. any experience of this kind of thing. So it took a certain amount of courage. Yes. Mm. You're and talking about ayahuasca. Yeah. I ended up with ayahuasca. Yes, ayahuasca. Because, because I, who suggested that? Oh, and you? a whole range of different people. Oh, okay. I mean, people older than me, people in, from the medical, all kinds of people, mm. so surprising people, yes. said, have you considered taking a glimpse of what might be out there yes. through psychedelic means yeah. was how it was described. Someone else said to me that there were sort of two interpretations. You know, the secular interpretation is the kind of sleep on it interpretation that we have a sort of wellspring of empathy and wisdom and understanding within us that we're able to access in our sleep mm. and we dream when we meditate. You know, you go to sleep on a letter and you mm. wake up in the morning and think, mm, maybe I won't send that. You Absolutely know, you go to true, sleep on yeah. a problem. Yeah. That psychedelics allow you to access that in some way. The more mystical interpretation and the one that is understood by all the indigenous societies of the world, from the aboriginals of Australia to the Pueblo Indians to mm -hmm. the Celts of Britain mm -hmm. before the Romans got here, is that we're connected with some kind of energetic umbilicus to a kind of greater consciousness mm -hmm. and that psychedelics are the cheat in the video game that allow us access mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter which one it is. I thought this will give me some kind of a glimpse. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Is it, my terror would be doing ayahuasca would be that you had such deep-seated grief that you might sort of end up exploding in some sort of primal scream. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That you would never be able to, it would be too frightening. Well, that was too exactly my terror too. But, okay, I, but yeah. I thought it was worth trying. Well, that's really I brave sort of thought of if just... I'm going to encounter yeah. some kind of alternate realm, yeah. this is how I might pull it off. Talk us through Too it. terrified to do that. It was among the most frightening things I've ever chosen to do. Yes. And there aren't very many of them. Yeah. But I am... Um, I did quite a lot of reading yeah. on what this is all about. Mm -hmm. And I figured that outside of the major religions, you know, among indigenous communities from the Sami, you know, the North Pole, all the way to kind of the people of the Amazon basin, psychedelic experiences are central to their religious and spiritual lives. Mm. Moments of great individual and collective tribulation. Mm. They go into a dream world to mm. try and find answers, to commune with their ancestors mm. or whatever. So this sounded all quite appealing. So I asked around and found out how I could go about doing this. Yeah. And with ayahuasca, there's a certain amount of ceremony involved. Yes. You know, so I found myself in the living room of the lady and her assistants who organizes this. And I did it with three people I trust yeah. and one or two others who mm. happen to be there. And there's a little bit of woo-woo around it. There's, a sh there's normally a shaman involved. Well, yes. So, so what she, is it? Is it a leaf? It's a vine. Aya means a spirit. Right. And wasca means vine. Oh. So it's a spirit vine. And the early Europeans... I could be a spirit vine. You could, you could be. be. <laughs> so it's a, vine that, it's a vine that gives you kind of mystical yeah. experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And this has been used on a regular basis by the people of the Amazon yes. for thousands of years. And, and what, you boil it up and drink they it? They boil it into a foul-tasting yeah. kind of okay. earthy, rooty tea. Sort of kombucha so they sort of do a little ceremony kind of thing, sure. which lasts a few minutes. And because you're quite frightened, you take yes. it all quite seriously. Mm. It's a bit like the safety drill on an aeroplane. Yeah. You kind of think, well, I better just pay attention <laughs> yes. here. Yes. You know, and I, you're certainly not going to giggle, you know, no. which you might do in another setting. Well, you're quite right. Yes, you take so, so you do that yeah. and then one is not allowed to talk. Right. You know, you then you do exactly what you're told. And then you mm. lie down. You get called one by one to drink your tea and mm. then you sit and you wait for the intoxicant. To take, and how long does it take? 
much quicker than I thought. Yeah. Very gentle music starts and the images in the room start to wobble a bit. And, <gasps> and you suddenly think, well, actually, I better lie down yeah. because I, you know, I feel like you're being pulled into a yeah. kind of sleep state. Yeah. But it's not sleep because you're vividly and vibrantly awake and you're... It's it's a, like a lucid dreaming state. Oh no, I get that. I yeah. hate lucid dreaming. Yeah. So, so this, well, this is but lucid dreaming. I found myself sort of e in a sort of echoey place. Say, Can you move, or are you sort of slightly paralysed? So by the time it really comes over you, you're not in your body. Your body and your mind are not there. Right. This is a different consciousness. It's mm -hmm. like a kind of very lucid dreaming. Mm. I found myself saying is the wrong word. Words like saying, hearing, seeing. Mm. These are not words that really apply, but they're the best we can do. Mm -hmm. I said, um, Iris, you know, is this where you are? You know, can you believe that I, of all people, did this mm -hmm. to try and find you? Mm -hmm. you know, can you believe it? And I found myself sort of in this sort of strange echoey world. And I, you suddenly find yourself awash with these kind of waves of reassurance and kind of knowing, mm -hmm. sort of knowing things that you sort of somehow always knew, mm -hmm. that we're part of something far bigger and more mysterious, but it's fundamentally benevolent. Mm -hmm. And reassurance that I'm doing okay, you know, mm. that I've done my best, that I'm good father, and a sense that we will be together again mm -hmm. in some way. But I remember emerging from it with a sense that it's not quite as simple as how we might interpret it. Mm. I remember being sent a photograph of a painting called Paradise by Gianni Di Paolo, a medieval painter. It's of people rapturously kind of reunited mm. in a kind of paradise setting. After yeah. I remember going back again and again to that painting in the early days because mm. in, in the madness of my grief, it gave me such comfort. I don't think things are as simple as the painting depicts. Mm. I think we're part of a grand mystery that's far beyond our mm. ability to understand. And this is what it gives you a sense of. It's not as simple as that. There is no time. Mm. You know, it's, it's all here and now. It's, mm. There is no other realm. It's all in one place in some way. Mm. And I think that, you know, quantum physicists do their best to yeah, try to understand the, it's this. It's the but spaces within, in between the spaces, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's something along those yeah. lines. Yeah. But it's a fundamentally a great, overwhelmingly massive, yeah. benevolent... So we're sort of here and nowhere Of sorts. So I don't feel that a year of magical thinking got me any closer to any answers, yeah. except that what we see and what we feel is not all that we get, that we're part of something far bigger. Yeah. And I just know that my purpose is to be the best father and husband and son and brother and friend that I can be to the people I know, to do my best in the world and to fulfill my purpose, which I think is really you know, nature and rewilding. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that nature is somehow like a tip of an iceberg. Mm. Whatever it is that we're part of, much of it is beyond our ability to perceive. But the physical manifestation of it is this extraordinary, magical kind of ever-changing fabric of the world that mm. we can see. Mm. And I think that's why I love nature so much. It's like the kind of, I think Imran once said, slightly pretentiously, it's the primordial face of God. Mm. But I understand what he means now. Yes. You know, it's it's just like a face looking out of the water. But where does the octopus come in? So, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, I hate to okay. be so, no. so no, literal I was about saying, it. Did you, did you where wear it is down? The so I... Um, I uh, <laughs> I, I, when, I, when it started to wear off, there's a feeling yeah. of tremendous relief. Yeah. Were you ill, by the way? Oh, most sorry, people yes. are really ill okay. when they do it. So, so I, I did. I, I found Thunder. myself emerging Very back sick. into the room. Yeah. And the whole room was kind of blurry yeah. and, and the sort of half dead lay around me. Yeah. And I remember feeling a sense of nausea. Yes. And one of the assistants came over and gently helped me yeah. to be sick into a bucket and yes. sip some water. But I don't remember it being a problem. It was sort of on a level of having to pee on a cold night. Oh, I don't okay. want to get out of bed, but I have to. Yeah. Because all I wanted to do was slip back into that mm, beautiful dreaming. Right. Mm. Because the stories of projectile vomiting and all that. No, not. no, I think it's very, it's very mild. And most of the, I was, I think I was the only one that was sick. And do you think oh, it's okay. more to do with just being dizzy? 
No, I think the purging, I think it, yes. I think it does induce some sort of poisons. I mean, right. you, at the time, you feel, I felt like I was at the brink of death. I mean, mm. of course, I wasn't. It's right. not a dangerous substance. No. I really researched that yeah. before. But as it started to wear off and I sort of found myself coming back into the room for a second time, hours later, I asked for a pen and paper and I started scribbling on that piece mm. of paper. And when it came time to leave after the second night, I took the piece of paper and I'd written various things over things about ducks and their eggs and beavers and and lots of hearts with the people I love in the hearts and a huge heart in the middle with Iris. And I'd written in big letters overlaid was God is an octopus. And I don't know why I, you know, there was something octopus-like about this Mm -hmm. presence all around me. And I think it was the closest I could get to articulating what I think God may be. And so it was not literal and it was a working title. But when Bloomsbury saw the manuscript, they said, we insist on keeping the title. That's a great title. It's a great title. (laughs) It is a great title. Have you ever read any of the Cthulhu novels? Mm -mm. Okay, you need to do that. It's basically horror science fiction but it's all based on these creatures that are basically octopuses wow. and it was all written I can't, I'm just trying to remember the name of the, of the author is it Arthur Macken okay. I think it could but be but I think the image I have I mean a lot of the mystics and William James did extraordinary yeah. paintings of octopuses yeah. and, and, and there are some medieval no, no, pictures are. of the kind of an yeah. octopus yes. god reaching yes. its tenor but it wasn't so much an octopus in the literal sense it was this idea that everything is the kind of part mm. of this whatever did divine you, being is. Well, did you see in colour when you were lying there looking in, into uh, yeah, the Yeah, the, 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 the world in which you go into Cthulhu. is extremely kind of vibrant but quite difficult to interpret in right, language. Right. Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, that's it. And you really should read them. Thank you. I, I think you'll find them fascinating. They are Have you only But if I'd heard this podcast... yeah. Four years ago, before I lost Iris, I would have thought, my God, what's happened to him? You know, this is, this is so far beyond the kind of things I would have spoken about before. I would have wanted to talk about the things I still love, mm. yeah. which is you know, putting beavers back into our river mm. systems and, and restoring wild boar to our woodlands and farming in a way that doesn't trash nature. And these were the things I lived and breathed. You also run the Ibiza Preservation Society. Well, I chair a charity called the Conservation Collective, yes. which has got 20 local environmental foundations, one of which is in Ibiza. Mm. So I don't actually know the island very well. I've been mm. But the foundation we set up there is one of 20 is giving out 700,000 euros a year now to all the best rewilding and regenerative yeah. farming things. On the and island. also with the uh, seaweed. Yeah, the Posidonia yes. seagrass. Yes. That's magical stuff. Yes. Where all the life is under the sea. Yes. Which is destroyed by rich people's boats with heavy anchors. Absolutely. Every year destroyed. Imogen's yeah. been on Ibiza for many years. I have. That's but... where we met each other. Now I'm remembering. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an absolute paradise. And when I yeah, got it there... Is, yeah. I've only been twice, but I thought this is going to be some huge party island. No, no, it's not. The vast majority of the island is beautiful, mm. small farms mm. and wild mm. Mediterranean mm. maquis mm. and these mm. undeveloped beaches. Menorca is very similar, actually. Except it's very, very, very windy. How is your beautiful farm now, though? It's like paradise. I mean, we've been in that part of Somerset more than a decade, mm. but you're sort of expected to farm. If you have a piece of land, you're expected to farm it in a certain way. Mm. And there's lots of people around and local neighbours and agents and people in the pub. That's how it's done. Mm. Yeah. Where we are in Somerset is some of the least productive farmland in England. You know, the, <laughs> Oh, really? The least productive 20% of our land in this country produces less than 1% of the food. Right. So if we're going to restore nature in this country, might well we might that. as well prioritise these kinds of landscapes. I'm in the Selwood Forest. Mm. And when Iris died, I suddenly thought, you know, why don't we just prioritize nature here? You know, Iris grew up with her brothers and their friends 
in the wilder corners of the farm, you know, around the pond and along the edge of the hedgerows. And, and the rest we basically didn't use very much. It was just a kind of muddy quagmire mm. and you know, surrounded by barbed wire everywhere. And so we just pulled out all the fencing, got rid of the 50 cows and 50 sheep, opened up some gaps in the hedges and just let go. And the little kind of dog rose and kind of crab apple and baby oaks and all kinds of wildflowers just started to reemerge through the fields and the hedges billowed outwards. And mm. you know, over the subsequent three years, it's been three years now, a mm. kind of wood pasture has started to emerge. And you have to have some grazing. If you have mm. no grazing at all, you end up with a dense, dark forest. Yes, yeah. You know, cattle Lots have, of trees, yeah. Yeah, so cattle have been in Britain for millions of years. Yeah. Aurochs were the ancestor of modern cattle. And mm. the last ones were taken by the Romans to fight in the Colosseum. And so cattle have a place. We, we now have a herd of longhorns, which mm. are free to roam where they want. Doing sleep some gentle they, mowing for yeah, you. Yeah, they do some <laughs> gentle browsing and grazing. Yeah. And, and they're creating this kind of mosaic wood pasture. Mm. Last weekend, we saw for the first time at night, we saw glowworms. Wow. You know, suspended above a wetland that's been created by beavers along the bottom of the valley and it's becoming a paradise mm. yeah it's like and the giant's garden when he gets rid of the walls yeah and, and all the uh, and all, yeah. all the children all come the in. children come in yeah. i used to read that book to yeah. my children on a really re regular basis beautiful beautiful story yeah. yeah but that's what it is it's exactly like that isn't it yeah you let me play in your garden yeah and now you will play in my yeah, garden i'll cry now that makes yeah. me so upset <laughs> i know me too. All the time. <laughs> me too but it's lovely that you didn't feel the need to leave because it could have gone the other way. Yeah, of course. It being the place where... I think quite early on, I realised that, that I was going to stay there mm. and that my survival might even depend upon staying yeah. there. You know, I remember coming back from the funeral. I couldn't quite believe it was actually me that had been at that funeral, that it was my family, my daughter. Mm. These, these things are so awful. Mm. I mean, it was so awful that it feels surreal that it actually happened. And I remember clambering out of the car and walking alone down to swim in the pond and I stripped and jumped into the water. I remember trying to swim very deep and like curling into a ball. And there was sort of some kind of refuge in the kind of murky depths of that pond. And when I popped back above the water, it was sort of late evening sun, kind of late summer, you know, kind of shining sideways across the pond and through the kind of the trees above. And there were dragonflies buzzing about. And I remember thinking, it's so beautiful here. You know, I was so surprised that I would even have that thought. Mm. How can I find anything beautiful ever again? But I do. I'm in this unbelievably beautiful paradise in this pond under an oak tree mm. in South Somerset. And it was then that I realized I need to stay here in the place where Iris grew up and the place where she died. Mm. So I'll be there forever. Did you do some... Uh... A stone circle or something that you've yeah, got some, there. Yeah, later that summer, yeah. some, someone was introduced to me who showed up in a van and it was a bit of a fug, the whole thing. I don't really remember a great deal about that time. But he said he'd lost his sister when they were young and they'd built a stone circle in the Celtic style and, and members of my family were very sweet and kind of organised it. My mum and my brother and my sister and others. And this sort of lorry arrived with these big rocks that had been plucked from a farm in Bodmin. Yeah. The, the Cornish granites, what the Celts mm. used to use to remember their mm. dead. And they were erected in a kind of untidy circle. And It's radioactive, the Cornish granite. Yes, it is mildly it? radioactive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And I go and sit in that stone circle. There's a little yeah. fire pit in the middle and I go and sit there in the evening quite often. And yeah. It's um, lovely. It's a place of meaning in some way. Well, thank you. I feel we've covered yes. literally every aspect. Yes. That was lovely, Ben. Thank, thank you so much. Book, I hope actually. you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Ben Goldsmith. His book, God is an Octopus, is available now. We'll put a link in the show notes.
If you enjoy listening to the half hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you would like to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, meet at Westminster Wag, don't bother with Imogen because she's still not on Twitter. You've been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Fine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>